welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. By 1913, several attempts had already been made to summit Alaska's Denali, the highest mountain in North America. That year, its peak was finally reached by four men, Harry Karstens, a prospector, hunter, and guide, Walter Harper, a native Alaskan, Robert Tatum, an Episcopalian seminary student, and the Right Reverend Hudson Stuck, missionary archdeacon of the Episcopal Church in Alaska. What that curious group was doing at such an altitude is the story of Patrick Dean's book, A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, America's Wildest Peak. It's by turn a biography of Hudson Stuck, a history of religious life in late 19th century America, a history of Alaska at the moment of immense social change, and apparently a story co-written by Jack London, who is still dead. Patrick Dean, welcome to Historically Thinking. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's. Uh, this is a uh, this is a, a fun book, but it's a it's it's a great book. And I'm really glad that because you reached out to me and told me about it and I missed the email and now I'm glad I saw it. Because for one thing, as I said, I read it about a month ago, read The Ascent of Denali and it was hot and I was outside, but I felt very, very cold because (laughs) your description of this awful torture that they had to get up the the sum of Denali is very, very cold and well told. But let's describe, (laughs) even though I don't think... In many ways, uh, the, the ascent of Denali is—it's the title of the book, um, but it's kind of an excuse to tell the rest of the story. I think you would agree. Um, it's yep. an awesome excuse. But so let's <laughs> describe first of all Denali, and then move on from Denali to Alaska and sort of the human terrain of Alaska in 1898, 1900. So Denali, you say, is well, Denali is is immense. I had no idea how big it was. Oh yeah, it's it's so massive. So the Alaska Range, I describe it as like a massive arcing eyebrow across the middle section of Alaska. And Denali, if you start on the left side of the eyebrow, it's about a third of the way around. Um, it's it's huge. It's uh, it's a mile taller than Everest if you measure it from base to peak. Um, it's twenty thousand feet high. Everest is twenty eight, but you start higher up when you're climbing Everest. Yeah. Um, it's also much farther north than Everest. Everest is on a line with Miami, same latitude mm-hmm. as Miami. So, um, you know, you get some of the rawest, coldest, windiest conditions on earth on Denali, and that accounts for its 50% success rate, even today among those who try to climb it. And you, as you say, the Alaska range is taken just by itself. Cause I guess is it, it's technically, it's an extension of the Rockies. If you look at the map, you can see how they, it sweeps all the way down, but um, it's the third highest range in the world after I think the Himalayas, the Andes, and then the Alaska range. So these are right. big mountains and yes. Denali in its, in its square, it, the, the, the square miles that it occupies is also like its own kind of state. It's its own, <laughs> it's its own weather environment because of its height. It's, it's it all is. these things because of, uh, uh, it's an immense mountain. It is that. And the other thing about it is that because of its position, in the state where it's placed, you can see it from a whole lot of Alaska. People, yeah. um, you know, people down in the um, in Cooks Inlet in the very south near Anchorage can look up and see it. 
people in the interior obviously can mm-hmm. see it if it's not blocked by other mountains. So it's there. It's just standing there, and it's easy to spot when the weather's when the weather's uh, cooperative. I've noted that for Alaskans in many ways, seeing Denali that is like being an Alaskan. It's something right. emblematic of being Alaskan. Right. Um, the other thing about Denali is, of course, that we're calling it Denali, which means which means what? And the tall from one, what language? The big one. The big one. Okay. Yeah, and many of the native Athabascan languages of Denali um, have some version of that. Um, okay. Yeah, but we've grown up calling it. Mount McKinley, at least in the lower 48. I remember my, my father's best friend moved to Alaska in the late 40s when they were both very, very young. And him visiting said, oh, no, no none of us call it McKinley. You know, it's Denali. <laughs> so calling it Denali was always a, a, a sign that you were a true Alaskan, I think, and that true sourdough. Yeah, and that, that, uh, that name came, the McKinley name came pretty early on in white uh, occupation or, or uh you know, inhabitation of Alaska. And it wasn't until 2014, I think was the year, that uh, it officially became Denali uh, as opposed to Mount McKinley, mm-hmm. despite vast and ongoing vituperative protests by the Ohio delegation <laughs> to, to Congress. <laughs> it's the cradle of presidents saying, forget Virginia, Ohio does a lot better at it. Uh, you know, they've been more successful. That's um, right. That's so right. the, uh, of course, the occupation of Alaska had begun long before McKinley, but there just weren't that many whites in the interior of Alaska up until the 1890s. Is that, am I, am I right? So we're, we're talking about, as I said in the intro, part of your story is the immense changes to, to the human terrain of Alaska. So what's going on in the 1890s, which sort of sets up the story? Right. So you're right. It began long before then. The Russians arrived in 1741, and they began a, a fur trade mainly focused around the coasts. Uh, the English caught on to the idea of the fur trade by 1800. They were there as well. Um, you know, the Americans followed. 1867 was Seward's folly. You know, the purchase of Alaska by the Americans, and by then the Russians were were glad to get out. Um, and then seven years after the purchase. You had what was called the Comity Agreement of 1874, where the Protestant churches basically divided Alaska up. Hmm. Um, the Presbyterians got the southern part. The Episcopalians got the middle Yukon section. Um, the Baptists got some. The you know so that's that's how that sort of came about. Um, by 1885, the Presbyterians were in charge of all the schooling for all of the Alaska natives, um, and. We can go more into the Presbyterians versus the, the Episcopalians if you want to, but basically that was the beginning of the civilizing, quote unquote, of Alaska natives, the, the, uh, the shearing of their uh, language, their customs, their dress, all of that to try to make them white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had begun as early as the 1880s. And then in 1897, you have the gold rush. You have a million people, a million white people thronging to Alaska beginning in 1897. And that was what really overwhelmed and just um, flooded Alaska and just left the Alaska native population reeling. Mm-hmm. And how, how so? Well, there were the epidemics first. Yep. There were uh, um, all of the, the communicable diseases that 
that whites brought with them that wiped right. out. And we should say like, people, a, like like a lot of these these gold rushes throughout the late nineteenth century from eighteen forty eight on. When one of them gets announced, it's like a moving nation of gold seekers goes from like Australia to New Zealand to South Africa to New Zealand to Australia to Alaska. So there are people from every corner of the earth, you know, and Asia and Africa too, who are bringing everything that they have with them in their body, which is disease of various exactly. kinds. Yeah. Exactly. And for which there are no immunities among the native population. So that was a, that was a massive blow to the population and to the culture because, you know, um, when a, when a shaman dies out, you've lost that cultural knowledge Mm-hmm. as well as just part of your population. So there was a huge, there was a huge blow that way. And just the, um, the fact that the, the, the miners and the prospectors and the people in the gold rush were not bringing enlightened, cultured, civilized behavior with them almost by definition. They mm-hmm. were bringing, they were bringing drunkenness and prostitution and, and uh, theft and all those sorts of things. And the natives were not prepared for that at all. So now let's move to Hudson Stuck, uh, who, of all things, I mean, not just an unusual kind of name. I mean, it's a kind of, it's as unusual Anglo-Saxon name, I guess, as you could have. Um, but it turns out, not only did an archdeacon in the Episcopal Church was one of the first people to climb Denali, but he was, grew up a London Presbyterian. Uh, please, <laughs> please, please explain the what you could find out about Hudson Stuck's uh, early life, because it's, it's it's interesting for any anybody who's interested in the history of England, for that matter. Right. So he was born in 1863 um, to a lower middle class family uh, in the sort of the Paddington neighborhood of London. Um, his father was a small businessman, and the family was um, fairly evangelical Presbyterian, from from what we know. There's not a whole lot of information about Stuck's early days. Which kind of puts them on a precise, like, you know, in the English way of thinking about class, puts them on a precisely, I mean, he's like Margaret Thatcher. They're both like lower right. middle class dissenters. You're of a certain kind. I mean, there's like a line going from Daniel Defoe, Hudson Stuck, Margaret Thatcher. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's not that much of an exaggeration. Because right. there's a, especially at his, at his, at her time, she could go to Somerville College, Oxford. You know, being a descending Presbyterian, even in 1863, uh, 1883 it limits you there's a limit there's right. a limit to your ability uh, progress until very right. until more or less time of his birth which makes it very interesting that stuck you know uh later on uh, joined the episcopal church mm-hmm. um was known for being so well read and so literate um he was very he was almost like a self-creation you know he sort mm-hmm. of rose above his religious background his family background and and you know as we as we know the church is one of those means of social mobility. And uh, I think he did that. I think um, he was considered to be quite a well-educated, cultured guy by the time he uh, you know, was firmly established in the church. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing to ponder, you know, you know, which came first, which led to which. You know, did he see that as a ticket out, or was he just naturally inclined that way, and it just, it just caused it to happen? Um, but in 1885, at the age of, of 20, Two, he decided to leave London, and, and the story goes that he was searching for adventure, and he couldn't decide between Alaska, I mean, between Australia or Texas. Those were the two places where young men in search of adventure went. So he flipped a coin, and Texas won. 
So that's how he ended huh. up coming to America and it, eventually launching his career. It's funny because I think in the English story, Australia would be more like understandable, but uh, I would bet at least a quarter or uh, that there are probably as many Englishmen, young Englishmen going to Texas as Australia. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, there's still, there's, there's still a continual immigration from England to the States uh, right. that gets kind of overlooked with the, against the colonial migration. So somehow this kid, this this lower middle class kid who's been doing something, ends up as a cowboy. He becomes a cowboy <laughs> in West Texas. I know. It's so cool. I know. You, you love the fact that a, a kid who grew up within a couple of miles of Buckingham Palace is you know, yeah. in his 20s riding a horse and, and carrying a Winchester rifle with him. Um, it's a great story. I, you know, people tell me, and I happen to believe it, that it would make a really great movie if anybody's listening, if anybody has a movie <laughs> agent. Um, <laughs> lots of great scenes from this book that would make a tremendous movie. But anyway. So he spends a lot of time learning to shoot, ride, get used to the heat. And uh, he teaches school too, which is interesting. Right. He was, he was trying to find his way. He definitely did not have a plan um, other than to see what he could do and try to make his way somehow. Um, did these odd jobs, sheared sheep and, you know, rode the range repairing railroad, uh, I mean, telegraph uh, glass insulators when the cowboys <laughs> would shoot them out. That was a particularly <laughs> awful job that he did. Yeah, he um, said he had to shinny up like 14 poles, uh, but only had 10 to glass insulators. <laughs> right, right. Um, and taught school, you know, just trying to make his way. And then finally uh, began volunteering with the local Episcopal churches in, in the places where he was living. And that's how he found sort of found his calling. So then what happened? So the bishop of, uh, the bishop of his area offered him a scholarship to the University of the South to study for the priesthood. And, and he was off like a rocket, as they say, in 1889 to Swanee, Tennessee, to the University of the South. So we have to explain because the University of the South is, is well, you're calling from, you're, we're, you're, I'm in Charlottesville, you're in Mont Eagle, which is five miles up the road on, on the same plateau as, as Swanee. Um, so you're going to explain the University of the South is very important to Stuck, and Stuck is extremely important to the University of the South to this day. Um, and um, with all due respect to the universe, it's still a bizarre place to this day. It's, un- it's, 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 um, and by I mean, it's unexpected. It's just unexpected. So you're going to explain what the university South was when Stuck went there. Cause it was already its own very unique culture. Yeah. So the university was founded, um, by the Episcopal diocese of the Southeast. It was supposed to be, uh, founded in 1858, um, they had 10 years to, uh, uh, they were given the land in 1858 and they had 10 years to begin the university. And then the civil war happened. And so in 1868, they scrounged and, and, and scrambled and had a ceremony so that they could say that they had begun the university within the 10 year period. Um, and, uh, it was designed to, uh, intentionally to be like an Oxford or Cambridge of, of the South of Tennessee in the middle of the Tennessee woods up on the Cumberland Plateau, about a thousand feet higher than the neighboring uh, countryside. It's about roughly halfway between Chattanooga and Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it has about 10,000 acres or is that, or 15? What's the, the 13, reserve? 13,000 now. 13, yes. yeah. The university owns this domain as it's yeah, called of, of, of lots of woods and mountains and streams and just beautiful, beautiful scenery. Um, and it's got, uh, Gothic architecture and neo-Gothic architecture. Um, yeah. It's a very eccentric place. 
and yeah. uh, it's a beautiful place. And Stuck, and Stuck loved it from, from the minute he got here. He did. It was always uh, a place in 1859. Um, it comes out of the white heat of uh, resistance to the Northern abolitionist conspiracy. Um, it, it does. I mean, it's and it's and I think it's an attempt. It it it, it presaged the split of the Episcopal Church from north and south, just as the way the other denominations had, had split. It was definitely an attempt to create a separate, you know, academic and intellectual power center, but it had grand plans. And it took, it took in in many ways. It's taken until the present to achieve most of them. But it's a. I mean, the first time I went there, it's an extraordinary place, I and mean, it is like an Oxford College dropped on top of this this wonderful Tennessee plateau. Um, <laughs> and Stuck loved that combination, I think. Uh, of mm-hmm. that, I mean, it, the, the Oxford Collegiate or Neo-Gothic was just being built while he was there. But he loved that combination of something of something that he wasn't able to taste while he was in England. That's exactly right. He, he with, keenly with the felt the lack of an education. He, he, he and there's little doubt that he was trying to recreate. He only made it as far as grammar school in mm-hmm. London. Um, and this was his chance to educate himself, to, to get that sort of education, to participate in the academic life of a university. And he made mm-hmm. full, full use of it. Um, and, won all and sorts fraternities. Of and, and like he did, he did everything. I mean, he was the president of a fraternity. Maybe the last time a seminarian was ever the president <laughs> of a fraternity. Um, but yeah, he won English awards. He was the editor of the school newspaper. He began a literary magazine. He was a he was an all star uh, yeah. until his graduation in 1892. And he did a lot of hiking and and spelunking and stuff and like loved that. Loved the loved loved the woods and the caves. There's a cave called Wet Cave down at the bottom of the mountain. And uh, there's well, it's a fact that the word stuck is written on the <laughs> wall of this cave in smudges as though from a carbide lantern of that time. So you can see that today if you go into Wet Cave. Whether he did it, there's no way of knowing, but it's there. So Yeah. At Swanee at the time, at the University of the South, he's at the perfect place to participate in the great changes that are sweeping across the Episcopal Church. And, you know, Anglican history is uh, a fascination of mine, mostly because it's so neglected by people who aren't Anglicans and so, like, ignored by people who are as well. Um and I think one historian said the problem is is that all Episcopalians believe everyone has everyone has won and should get prizes, so that the 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 irregularities in Episcopalian history are always erased and and, and shaved down. But um, this is the time where, in some ways, uh, the High Church movement, the Anglo Catholic movement, is making more success in the United States than it ever did in the UK. And as witness, take a look at the architecture of, of the University of the South. <laughs> I mean, exactly. uh, the neo-Gothic red doors that that you're not doing that on a broad church or an evangelical Anglican church in in England. That's for sure. But so right. there's 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 one thing that he he takes to that. He also takes to muscular Christianity, and he also takes to the social gospel. And um, could you explain what both of those things are? And then we're going to have to explain how both of those things, which seem antithetical, are actually wrapped around each other at the time. Yeah. Well, the social gospel, I think, was the church's sort of dawning realization that the, the industrial revolution was, was creating problems that, that needed to be addressed at the mm-hmm. level of, of the church. Um, it, was the, it was the belief that um, 
one of one of the professors when stuck was at Swanee said that the problems of this age are social problems and therefore the gospel for this age must be a social gospel. So um, that's it's a not very a new common idea phrase. now. No, it's a very common phrase at the time, I think. I mean, everyone patented yeah. it, that, that phrase. Yeah. Copyrighted so that phrase. Today it's today that's a familiar idea that a church would be doing that sort of thing. But but in this in this time it was kind of a new. It was a new thing. Um, and so he absorbed that sort of um, idea uh, during his time in Swanee. Mm-hmm. As for muscular, muscular Christianity, it was sort of simultaneous, but but, but utterly different in a way, um, arising out of sort of the imperial, the British Empire and its its codes of behavior and its sort of prep school ethos. Um, it was a it was a sort of a an idea that that traditional Christianity could be a little bit too soft, a little bit too effeminate, and that uh, what Christianity needed was was grit and rigor and uh, people who could you know uh, walk a hundred miles and ride a horse and shoot a gun and yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'll so, push back on that. Um, you cite Charles Kingsley as one of the advocates of muscular Christianity, which he was. Charles Kingsley is also one of the advocates of Christian socialism. And and sort of and and Christian socialism in England is in the, in the social gospel. Then what what the hell is? Um, <laughs> so I think that they were very closely related. Now it gets complex because Kingsley is also a racist and and a supporter of Darwin, who believes Darwin is uh, completely uh, orthodox and something of, uh, but also believes in therefore in racial degenerates. And um, is he kind of a proto-eugenicist, probably? So there are a lot of nice things get mixed up with a lot of bad things, and it's um, pointless to me to try to run the spin cycle higher or longer to get them to come out in the wash. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah. They are bound together. What's interesting about Stuck is, is um, I mean, so there are a lot of progressive social gospel muscular Christianity types who are also racist of one kind or the other, and, or and might be paternalistic. What's right? Interesting about Stuck, I mean, at best, I mean, that's when we're, that's when we're, that's when they're okay. Uh, we're hope, we hope they're paternalistic. Actually, they might not be. Right. Um, Stuck is not paternalistic and he's certainly not, not a eugenicist and he's certainly not a racist. And that's what it makes him kind of interesting. He does separate that stuff out in a way that lots of other people, well-intentioned people, um, did not. Which is very interesting about it. Do you have any theories about why? I, you know, there are a lot of things that about Stuck that I think are just sui generis. I think we just have to take him as he is. I'm not sure how he got to be that way. Um, you know, he could easily have gone to Alaska and been like the, you know, trying to be the great white father to mm-hmm. the Alaska natives on, under the care of the church in his area. But he just, he just didn't. I don't, he could have been advocating sterilization of, 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 mm-hmm. of drunkards uh, and, you know, and the indigent or whatever, you know, as a way of right. increasing the genetic, you know, uh, the health, genetic health of the native population, something like that. It's easy right. to imagine. But he didn't. And, and on top of that, in person, he personally was fairly brusque and fairly intolerant and fairly hard to deal with on some occasions in a yeah. lot of ways. So you would think you would think he, of all people, would be that kind of uh, muscular Christian, but he just wasn't, and that's yeah. why he's still known and loved in Alaska today. Yeah. So he returns to Texas uh, and is quickly slotted for higher things, which in his case is Dallas. So, right. um, and could you just describe his, his efforts in Dallas? Cause they are like a, a wonderful synopsis of what the, the social gospel meant in the, in the industrial revolution. 
Right. So he, he in, in 1894, he becomes dean of the Cathedral of Dallas, which is, you know, you have the bishop who's, uh, whose seat is the cathedral, but then the, the dean is the person who actually is in charge of the cathedral on a day-to-day basis. Um, and Stuck wastes a little time once he gets there in uh, all of these initiatives that he has. Um, he starts a night school for mill workers. He starts a mission, St. Andrew's Mission, down in the mill district. Them. He starts a home for uh, aged women and a, a home for boys, St. Matthew's School for Boys, which he envisioned mm-hmm. as a feeder, and, it, and indeed it was a feeder to the University of the South for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, just an amazing amount of output in a, in a, in a decade. And then, if, and then of course, um, he jumps full in and becomes one of the leaders in the, the drive to uh, have Texas's first child labor laws passed in 1902. Um, which All this happens. while riding on horseback every day, and <laughs> and taking and making sure the Swanee football team is housed and fed That's while right. it's That's touring right. Texas. That's you know, right. I mean, this is like this guy is—he doesn't stop. No, it's amazing. It's an amazing. Uh, he'll make you feel like a slacker for sure. Yeah, to read what he does. But what, uh, could you could you describe the child labor law? Because this is a major sort of thing in his in his in his life, isn't it? I mean, this this work that he does in the child labor laws. I think so. So there were no there were no hour there were no laws at that point limiting the number of hours a child could work, what age child could work in a in a mill, typically cotton mills in in mm-hmm. Texas and Dallas at this point. Right. Um, and uh, you know, then as now, you had uh, voices and forces who said that it was just fine that it was preferable to have children at you know working rather than being in, in being in school. Many of them were probably the children's parents. Right. Right. That's absolutely right. Um, yeah. The mill workers said that they were keeping families together by mm-hmm. having by hiring the having the yep. children in the mills um, at the same time as their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly to me, one of his main, one of Stuck's main allies was the women's clubs of Texas, many of whom would have been married to the industrialists and the yep. business leaders and the opinion leaders um, of the time. So mm-hmm. the women's clubs apparently were were a pretty formidable force, and and they loved Stuck, and they were they worked with him on this on this effort. Yeah, so we should talk about that uh, women loving Stuck. Um, questions of Stuck's sexuality. Um, he is a dashing, handsome guy. All the women say that until he opens his mouth. And then he's kind of brusque and rude and says, what are you doing here? This is no place for little girls, you know, or something like that. Um, what is uh, uh, in Stuck? Uh, he, he's in the church where he's allowed to, to marry. Um, he does not. I mean, he seems right. sort of uh, he seems your perfect bachelor missionary bishop. What, what, what's going on there? Well, in sex defense a little bit, I will say that there were certain women very uh, effective um, women in the front on the frontier in Alaska in the missions uh, that he respected immensely and praised Eventually. for the work that they did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, but there have been back, you know, as far as people have been wondering about stuck and writing about him, um, his first biographer, um, David Dean, no relation uh, in the hmm. 1980s when he wrote about stuck dealt with this issue too. Um, he definitely uh, enjoyed uh, mentoring uh, young men and boys, um, founded the school for boys, pushed them to Swanee, 
to, to college. Um, so there's been speculation about his sexuality and whether he was, whether he was homosexual. And uh, we, the short answer is we just don't honestly know. I mean, there's no reason to believe that he ever was in any sort of relationship at all, that mm-hmm. he ever, ever did anything improper with any of his protégés or any of the young men who were under his care. And we mm-hmm. basically have to leave it at that and also understand what life was like back in the late 19th century in terms of men and so close social bonds. Uh, it was a different time. And the, you know, the, the word homosexual didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Um, back then it was just thought of differently. So and it's, it's, it's almost, um, I, I have to be careful how I say this. I've said this to students in the past. Um, it's a little odd in that men, um, let's say men who seem to be, well, no, actually men who are perfectly, we know based on their subsequent performance are completely heterosexual, <laughs> <laughs> Let's say that they might be uh, some English aristocrat with uh, several sets of illegitimate children, but they have very deeply, deep emotional relationships with other men, which would make us embarrassed. Right. To ex- make us embarrassed to read or to express in 2021, it's ver- which is a very interesting contrast. And let, this is like 18th century. It's much more like the 18th century than it is like today, even though it might be closer to today. Right. Right. When, when Stuck writes of having, of crawling into the, into under the, the furs in the, you know, in the tent in a 50 below night with Walter Harper, his Indian protege, his native protege, we just have to, yeah, we just have to take that for what it is and, and, and roll on. So he, um, we'll probably get back to that at the end, but he, um, he, he leaves Texas. Why does he leave Texas, and why does he go to Alaska? Well, he didn't quite get along with his bishop. Um, I, you know, deans and bishops often clash. Usually, the bishop is older, more established, more conservative, and the dean is younger and more dynamic and has ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and under under the uh, as one Anglican once said to me. Uh, you know, a dean doesn't have to allow the bishop into the church. <laughs> and most of them prefer not to. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there, was some, there's some, there was some real undermining. The bishop didn't really care for the boys' school. He had a different agenda mm-hmm. um, going on in terms of education in Dallas. And so Stuck had been there for 10 years. I think uh, he felt like he'd, he may have done everything he could. Meanwhile, Peter Rao, the Bishop of Alaska, swoops down and starts, you know, dazzling stuck with tales of the far north and all that he could do up there, all he could achieve. And and stuck bit. He said, you know, this is a job that could could uh, take all my potential, give me scope for all my ambitions. And, it certainly and he did. also felt like he was also the sort that liked to push himself. He went mountaineering, he went in the Rockies, he went to the Grand mm-hmm. Canyon while living in Texas, and he liked that strenuous outdoor life. And he, I think he wanted to push himself physically as well. Yeah. So. He, there, there's a lot of Teddy Roosevelt. You can see Teddy Roosevelt's not just sui generis. It's part right. of the atmosphere, right? This is, this is stuck pushing himself. You know, this is, um, yeah, I'm sure they must've met stuck and, and Roosevelt. He would have been, he would have been Roosevelt's kind of cleric. That's for sure. He was received at the white house in 1909 and met Teddy Roosevelt briefly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so he, Goes to Alaska. Could you describe what he sees when he goes up the Inside Passage? Because that's he takes the sort of journey that cruise ships take now. 
Um, exactly. He, he, he sees, I mean, he's, he's, he immediately falls for a hook, line, and sinker. Oh yeah. Just, just describing the, the gorgeous scenery and, uh, the, the beauty of the North. And then, you know, I thought the, the thing to me that, that was most striking is that even before he really gets to Alaska, he sees, um, totem poles along the shoreline. Mm-hmm. And immediately starts pondering the fate of Alaska's native people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said, you know, in his in his, I'm going to read a little bit from yeah, my book. Here. He Please. says, for the, the the Tlingit, the people whose whose totem poles he was looking at, he's he's scathing about it. He says, for the Tlingit have been educated out of regard out of regard for their ancestors. My teachers, for the most part, had no ancestors. And therefore, cannot see anything but heathenism in distinctions of family descent. So he is just, you know, almost immediately see, you see that he's going to be on the side of the traditions and cultures of Alaska natives, as opposed to the what he sees as the usurpers of of you know the white people who think that they have should be arrogant enough to to change these people. Yeah, let me, let me quote a little bit more of that passage. He says, The steamroller of our civilization is slowly passing over these people and flattening out any picturesque prominence of custom and costume into the dead level of modern uniformity. Right. Uh, so part of his mission is to stop the steamroller or to at least make sure that something survives. It's, it becomes clear that's part of his mission. Exactly. Uh, post, yeah. Um, so he takes the way, he doesn't go the modern way. He doesn't drive up from, he doesn't stop at, I guess, is there an anchorage at the time? I'm not even sure. But he goes yeah. through the way the Goldmeyers went over the Skagway Pass right. and into the Yukon Valley. He has some remarkable descriptions of the Yukon. Um, could you, I, I've got one uh, right here. He says, the Yukon Flats, it is a great country and a noble river. The warm sunshine gilds the low willow and aspen banks just turning with the hints of autumn and shines in a broad wake of glory behind the foaming paddle wheel. And the Yukon is like, that's the most, one of the most, that's more important to stuck than Denali for the rest of his life, isn't it? I think so. I think, you know, to me, the Yukon is, is Alaska's Mississippi river. I mean, it's so, it's so huge, so powerful, so, um, instrumental to Alaskan life in the interior. Um, and he wrote beautifully. I mean, he, for the most part, he avoids the excesses of, of uh, turn-of-the-last-century writing, I think. I think his books are really enjoyable to read. Of course, mm-hmm. he had Maxwell Perkins as his editor, so Did that he helped. He, he wrote for Scribner's, so Perkins, you know, Hemingway's and Fitzgerald's and Thomas Wolfe's editor edited two of his books for Scribner's. Huh. So, so maybe stripped him down. Um, but so. they, they, he does have a lovely prose rhythm. Um, you can, you can hear there's like a chant in some of the, in some of the lines. So he gets to Fairbanks and naturally he gets right to work. Um, <laughs> basic creating what, you know, us mon- mo- modern pointy heads would call civil society. It's like he, he's come to Fairbanks. It's a mining camp more or less. Um, right. and, and like he's setting up a reading room right next to the brothel or something like that. <laughs> Could right. you tell, to talk a little bit about his early life and then, and then the, and then sort of what made him fame, what makes him still famous in Alaska, that his dog sledding prowess. Cause I want to, I want to hear about that. Right. He, to him, when he arrived in Fairbanks, the 19, September 1st, 1904, he described it as a, the center of feverish trade and feverish vice. Um, 
you know, the, the stereotypical gold rush town. Um, and yeah, he, first thing he did is go to the hospital. Well, the supposed to be hospital, the, the committee supposed to, that was supposed to build the church was so inept that he immediately fired them himself, took on building the church. And within, you know, within, um, within two weeks, St. Matthew's hospital had treated his first patient. I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. He was just. Admittedly, the intensive care unit was very primitive compared to mine. <laughs> but the fact that it existed in two weeks is still um, some kind of, it's just, it's amazing. And yeah. I, I should look it up, but I bet you there's still St. Matthew's Hospital in Fairbanks or of some kind or some descendant of it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think they might, there was, it was renamed Hudson Stuck Hospital. And I think it closed within the last couple of decades just okay. because it was superseded by bigger, better hospitals. Sure. So he uh, builds a church, builds a right. reading room at the church, does right. all these things, and then he starts. Then he discovers dog sledding. Could you could you talk about that? <laughs> sure. So that that fall, he began learning how to drive a dog sled. Put together a sled team. Uh, found um, the first of a series of of natives, some younger, some older, to accompany him on these on these trips. And he began the first of yearly visits to his mission churches in the dead of winter by dog sled. Because it was easier um, in a way, it's I guess easier in the winter to to make to some of these places. In the interior, yes, definitely. In the summer, he had a different plan, and we can talk about that in yeah, a minute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he the, the first trip, the first circuit he made, the winter of 1904-1905, took him 101 days. Twenty of those averaged 30 degrees or more below zero. <laughs> he covered 1,480 miles in 62 days of mushing. So. Um, he did that every incredible. And his first book, 10,000 Miles with a Dog Sled, is, again, I recommend it. I think it's, I think it holds up. So if he had come out with a second edition, I guess by that time it would have been 20,000 miles with a dog sled. <laughs> right? I mean, he said he, much. he said the 10,000 was, was a round number. It was probably more than that by the time he wrote it. So yeah. And then he kept on doing it again and again and again. And typical um, of Stuck in the introduction, he said, a lot of people, go farther than that in a winter in Alaska. He said, that's not anything, that's not anything too heroic. I'm just here to talk about what I've seen and what I've learned on my trips. And that was, that was typical of him too. He, he had an arrogant side, but he also had a humble side about things like that. So what, what's his, what's his routine? What's he doing when he goes to, when he makes his circuit? Well, I mean, he would, he would, uh, you know, because of the time and because of who he was, he was not only the the spiritual minister um, who would have to do things like marry a couple and baptize their child on the same day because mm-hmm. nobody, no priest had been through there in about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, he also saw to their physical needs. He saw to their medical needs. He um, arranged for uh, them to visit the mission schools or the hospitals, you know, nearby where they could get medical care. Um, he believed in the gospel of soap and water. Mm-hmm. And so he was a sort of a traveling um, assistant for pretty much everything they needed uh, in these far-flung local uh, native communities. And what was he learning? Did he learn uh, Athabascan or did he learn any of the local? No. Not that we know, but he, he was an incredibly keen observer. If you read his books about uh, how natives thought, how they lived, um, the ways in which their lifestyles were preferable to the ones that were trying to be foisted upon them, their deep mm-hmm. knowledge of the land, 
um, and how to live on that land and how to survive and thrive in those, in those you know, incredible conditions. He was full of admiration for all, for all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it shines, shines through in his writing for sure. So um, I guess we should get to the, um, what you call his nobler ideal. Um, what is the nobler ideal? That's his term, correct? Yes. So his, his, his greatest fear would that, was that the natives would be caught sort of in between, sort of not fully white, so to speak, but mm-hmm. also no longer in tune with their past, with their heritage, with their culture. Um, he had this, this, this one image that for him summed it up with, you know, the, um, the Victorian large brim flowered hat was called a Mary widow, the typical hat we're thinking about. Um, and he wrote, um, of this, this misguided to him attempt to turn natives into white people. He said, so occasionally the grotesque spectacle may present itself to the passengers on a steamer of a native woman in a Mary widow hat and a blood-stained parkey gutting salmon on the riverbank. Mm-hmm. To him, that was like the worst possible combination. You know, they were just sort of in between. They were lost. They weren't rooted anymore. Um, and instead, he said, the, nobler, the nobler ideal is to labor for God-fearing, self-respecting Indians rather than imitation white men and white women. A native who was honest, healthy, and kindly, skilled in hunting and trapping, first in his native Bible and liturgy, would be preferable to a re-educated native as envisioned by the government. So, um, and he was very much uh, one to have the Book of Common Prayer and the hymnal translated into native languages. There were times when he was on the, the, the borderlands where the Inuit were to the north and the Athabascans were to the south, and he would have services in three languages. Mm-hmm. It would be English followed by the Inuit followed by the Athabascan. So the services would take three times as long. So... That's what he was after. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to bring about the best possible combination, as he saw it, of native skills and culture and the white, um, the benefits of the Western culture. So man's got a lot on his plate. He's got a very full itinerary, places to go, places to be. <laughs> Why climb Denali? Why Denali? I think, um, well, part of it, is part of its personal and part of its um, in service of his greater goals, I think. Mm-hmm. I love that one of my favorite things about Stuck is when he talks about one of the few things he really uh, tells us, one of the few glimpses he gives us of his childhood um, is when he tells the story about his, his uncle who was in the merchant marine and uh, disappeared at sea but left his family in, his ha- in Stuck's house um, a parrot and this collection of books on Arctic exploration. And Stuck was transfixed as a young guy uh, looking through these uh, leather-bound, gorgeous uh, volumes and uh, describing the, the poles and the, 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 uh, the Eskimos and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, it seized his imagination and carried him for the rest of his life. He became quite a scholar of all the exploration literature. He left mm-hmm. several hundred uh, copies of his library volumes uh, to the University of the South, and you can go to the archives here in Swanee, and and you know pick up his copy of Cook's Voyages or Vancouver or you know Hacklett's Voyages from the 1500s. 
Um, so he was very well burst, burst in all that. And I think he saw himself as maybe adding a little bit to that tradition by attempting to climb, climb Denali and be the first there. But he also was very explicit in saying that he was doing it to promote the native cause of Alaska, that he wanted to bring attention to what was going on in Alaska and how he and others were working to, uh, for the benefit of Alaska natives. Um, you know, I've said more than once that, you know, today, you know, we think about, you know, people uh, cross Antarctica to highlight climate change or they run across the country and, and to bring awareness to some right some cause or other but you can almost look at this as the first cause expedition that's a very interesting that's a yeah it's a very good way of looking at it and there, there's a yeah. reason then why he's writing the book about climbing denali as he's climbing denali uh, right he wants to get it to press quickly and to make a splash for what else is going on what he's doing and he makes a very forthright plea in the beginning and the end of that book for the mountain to be called by its native name. Mm -hmm. He was very intentional about calling the ascent of Denali, mm -hmm. but that's what that was only only justice to him that that be the name. So um, we should talk a, a very briefly about the other attempt. There have been several other attempts. I guess the one that most impresses me is, and I had heard about this, uh, I guess from my dad's friend in Fairbanks way back when. The sourdough expedition of what nineteen ten, yes, where they got to the south, the north summit, or the yeah, the, the, north, the north summit. That's the lower summit. That's right. It's amazing they got up there. <laughs> <laughs> and to hang an enormous American flag, but it turned out you couldn't really see it from Fairbanks. Um, right, right. Well, flagpole basically. Flagpole, um, yeah. Right. They, that they thought you could see from Fairbanks when they got down there. They were. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So there was. To make a, a intricate story Very brief, short, yeah. the, uh, Dr. Frederick Cook claimed to have summited Denali in, in 1908, and um, the the Bush Telegraph, so to speak, knew that he couldn't possibly have done it. He just yeah. there, there weren't it was impossible to do what he had done in the time he said he had done it. And so, you basically to oversimplify just a little bit for reasons of fun. You basically have like four or five guys sitting in a bar saying, yeah. you know, we should try that. That's that's no way he did it. We should try it and, pr and prove that he was wrong. So these guys with no mountaineering experience, I mean, they are tough and sourdoughs. They know how to, you know, live in Alaska, but they've never climbed a mountain before. And um, they just go for it and made it, like you say, almost all the way to the very top of Denali. And they made it to the, the lesser summit and... Uh, and erected this pole, which nobody believed they'd even done it until Stuck's expedition gets there up there and sees the pole and, and vouches <laughs> for their uh, for their accomplishment. But it's just an amazing story. It's one of the best mountaineering stories ever. Yeah, it is. and then between 1910 and 1913, there was an earthquake. This is what the and it knocked rubble and lots of ice, so that Stuck's party had a much, much, much harder go of it. They had to really carve their way up the side of the mountain at, at times. That's right. It was one of the – probably the single biggest obstacle to their successful summit was the, was the state of the Northeast, Northeast Ridge after the, uh, after, the, after the earthquake. So could you describe briefly um, – we should describe the people that were part of the, part of the, of the group because after the expedition, after the summiting – that becomes an important part of the, the subsequent story. So I mentioned Harry Karstens, who is a classic Alaska character. 
Yeah, Karstens had come to Alaska during the gold rush, had been on the same stream as Jack London in 1897. Um, but unlike London, who hightailed it back to California almost immediately, uh, Carson stuck around and made a career for himself and made a living as a mail driver, a prospector, um, hunting guide, um, mm-hmm. generally acknowledged to be one of the most experienced, toughest backwoodsmen in Alaska and stuck, cl- stated quite frankly that he wouldn't have gone on the expedition if he hadn't had Carson's there with him. Mm-hmm. What, then you I, have, I mean, uh, he'd only been there, but though I have to say, he was I realized when if he came there in 1897, he'd only been there about twice as long as he's been there twice as long as, as stuck, but still right. he'd only been there 16 years. It's amazing. Even at that time, people are uh, sourdoughs. The experts <laughs> have only been there relatively short periods of time. Yeah, that's right. But he was, yeah, that's exactly right. But he'd, he'd done it. He'd made his reputation. Yeah. And then you have Walter Harper who was 21, who was half Alaska native, uh, Stuck's protege, uh, who has a, uh, a quite sizable role in the expedition and in the history and the legacy of the of the climb. Um, and Robert Tatum, who is, I call him the fifth beetle of the Ismailed <laughs> expedition, um, also 21, studying for the priesthood, um, who had his life otherwise was pretty uneventful. He climbed Denali and then went back to Knoxville and was a priest for 40 years or something like that. So and Was he a University um, of the South graduate too? Uh, or... But somehow associated. Yes, yes, that's yeah, right. Of course, yeah. So uh, they make it. Um, you should read about. You should read the book. See uh, how hard it was, and, and to feel cold on a on a hot day. Um, uh, but then afterwards, there's one of the many regrettable. Not the worst. We'll get to that. But the one, the first regrettable thing is that Karstens takes against Stuck. Um, it doesn't. Stuck seems to be kind of uncomprehending about this. Um, it's kind of evident why Karstens feels this way, but can you describe that briefly? Cause that. Sure. So um, I think that the, the main point to start with is that Harper and Walter Harper and Stuck had been on <coughs> dog sled expeditions together for years. And so they had a routine <coughs> together. Um, you know, they would make camp at night when they were dog sledding, they would make the camp, get everything set. And uh, Harper would do a lot of the, physical work of setting up camp and Stuck would tutor Harper in, you know, they would read Shakespeare, they would read history. He would teach him mathematics and, and all that sort of thing. And it was sort of the deal, I think, um, Mm -hmm. the sort of unspoken arrangement that they had. Well, when they got on the mountain and they started doing that again, Karsten saw what Stuck was doing as laying around the tent Mm -hmm. and he was, he was writing, he was, uh, you know, teaching, teaching car, uh, teaching Harper, um, and Carson's was, was just didn't understand that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, Carson's also seemed to have this suspicion that, that Stuck was using Carson's expertise and was going to claim all the credit for the expedition eventually. And then unfortunately what happens is that because of the times that they lived in, the newspapers trumpeted Stuck as the leader of the expedition. It was the Stuck expedition. It was the mm-hmm. Episcopal priest who, who summited Denali. Um, in spite of all of Stuck's efforts not to have it be that way. Mm-hmm. And Carson's... He's, he's very explicit yep. about that in everything he writes. He, doesn't he usually call it the Carson-Stuck expedition or something like that? I mean, he always puts yes, Carson's I mean, name there, first. You know, in the foreword to this end of Denali stuck says right out that he was dependent on stuck on Carson's strength and endurance to get this done. Um, 
he wrote letters to the editor after newspaper uh, accounts left out Karstens. Um, he held to his side of the bargain, which was to give Karstens 50% of all the proceeds that Stuck got from articles, uh, from books, and any income he made off of the expedition. But, but Karstens, for whatever reason, never forgave him um, and died believing that he'd been uh, screwed over by did, Stuck and all of did this. Did he deposit the checks? <laughs> I think he probably did. <laughs> okay. Walter Harper, though, that, that's the saddest part is what happens to Walter Harper because he was uh, a gifted, you know, gifted guy. Um, yes, he was, um, he was literally the first person to set foot on top of Denali. I don't know if I'm giving away too much plot now. No, it's all right. Um, <laughs> um, <coughs> which is why June the 7th is now Walter Harper Day in the state of Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stuck made careful was careful that it was Harper who was the first to to be, to be the. We'll never know if that had to be done or not because the th- other three of them had upset stomachs and felt like <laughs> crap all day. And Harper, yeah. with his ironclad constitution, led them the entire way. So there was uh-huh. never it never came down to any discussion of you know after you okay. Alphonse or whatever. Yeah. Um, it just it just turned out that way. But um, I want to imagine that Stuck would have made it happen regardless. I'm just yeah. going to, I'm going to believe that until somebody can, can convince me otherwise. Um, but yes, he was very, uh, very gifted, very charismatic. Um, and he, uh, he found a woman that he wanted to marry. who was a nurse, a mission nurse in, in 1918. And, um, they were married by Stuck in September, 1918. And, uh, in October, they got on board a ship called the Princess Sophia, um, which uh, the next day sank uh, just northwest of Juneau in the Inside Passage, and all passengers aboard were lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a tragic, tragic story. Um, it's been yeah. called the Titanic of the of the U.S., um, and it got lost in the news of the end of the. Uh, uh, World War One. World War One was yeah. r- winding up at that point, and it sort of yeah. got lost in the war news. So, but it, it, bro- and it, it broke Stuck's heart. I mean, it, it he, he declines from that point on because he, so. he he put a lot of hope on Harper and Walter Harper and what he would mean for the the future of Native Alaska. Yeah, I think I think it's not exaggeration at all to say that Walter Harper was was his representation of the nobler ideal. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Stuck dies in, in, uh, died in 1920. Um, yes. And um, he, uh, uh, I, I think I might have said, he's still, um, he's still remembered by Alaskans uh, to this day. Did, I, I, were, 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 could you tell that, uh, how the story of how, uh, how Native, uh, how this comes, how, how Stuck came, co- still comes up in conversation? Sure. So I happen to be... <laughs> Um, I happen to have gotten to know a man who was who was a retired rector at St. Matthew's Church Fairbanks, the church that Stuck founded, and uh, he uh, he's actually old enough to have known people who knew Stuck, and he told me recently about a, a time when he was he was hanging out with a couple of Native elders. This was just within the past few months, um, and uh, there's a there's a story told about Stuck. Uh, an anecdote, one of these, one of these stories, one of these sort of comic stories, where uh, the archdeacon had run his boat on a ground on, on a river, and a steamboat captain came by and 
started tried to ask him what he was what he was doing and 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 the archdeacon said i'm stuck as in you know <laughs> that's who i am i'm archdeacon i'm archdeacon stuck i'm stuck and the and the uh the pilot it's one of those abbot yeah. costello type things where the pilot thinks he's sort of being obvious and just just frustrated and just goes on down the river and leaves him there because he thinks he's just you know being a jerk or whatever and uh so my my friend the, the retired rector was as i say was was hanging out with a couple of native elders within the last couple of months and one of them started telling that story just as you know as older folks tend to do they just sort of tell stories about the past and things that are going on and the hudson stuck story comes up and the man's been dead for 90 years so uh it's a great example of how stuck's uh, career and his personality live on in in alaskan history and alaskan memory and native memory so you're not an alaskan you're from the mississippi delta originally uh (laughs) how did you arrive at this topic um so uh, circuitously actually Um, (laughs) the best way (laughs) so as we as we talked about before off off camera i first read about stuck in lanterns on the levee by william alexander percy though he's not named there he's described it's there's a famous chapter in that book about swanee and what the swanee type is or was back in those days and and stuck is described as one of the exemplars of that swanee uh type um Again, even though he's not named, but it does say that he he climbed a mountain. So that was my first brush with him. In my twenties, I actually bought that book by Stuck, uh, Ten Thousand Miles with a Dog Sled, um, dedicated to Swanee. Although I'm not sure if I noticed that at the time. <laughs> um, uh, in 1999, my wife and I moved here to the mountain and started going to All Saints Chapel in Swanee, where you can see a plaque in Stuck's honor and a statue of him behind the altar in the Reredos. Um, dressed in an Arctic parka with a sled dog jumping up on him um, <laughs> in All Saints. And uh, at some point I put together that that's who that was. And uh, I decided to pursue a master's degree, an MA at the School of Theology at the University of the South, same place where he had gone. Um, and I wrote my thesis, my master's thesis on the muscular Christianity of Hudson Stutt mm-hmm. in 2006. So from there, the idea of a book just sort of, you know, happened naturally. And here we are. Yeah. So your sources, uh, were, you referred to his library is at in the li- in the li- his own personal library is now in the library at Swanee. What were some of the other sources that you used? Obviously his, his litter, his, uh, his journals, his literature, it's all very, is there anything else that's a little bit out of the way that you had to use to untangle the Hudson Stuck story? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I wrote this book during the pandemic. In fact, I was, I was, if you you want to have imposter syndrome, try writing a book about a place that you don't get to go to. I didn't get to go (laughs) to Alaska. I was supposed to go last May or June and it didn't happen. So, um, and, and just as bad, I couldn't go to the archives of the Episcopal church in Austin, Mm -hmm. um, where most of his letters and, and things like that are. Um, but I had some pretty unlikely allies. For instance, the Carstens family. I got to know huh. uh, Harry Carstens' grandson and great grandson, and, and the great grandson especially had done a lot of research on Stuck and provided me with a ton of letters, um, and and other documents that and photos and information because he actually climbed Nolly um, himself and followed in his great grandfather's footsteps, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, 
he was a great source of information for me. And I was, I was quite pleased when they read the chapter on Karstens and, and, and gave it a thumbs up. They thought I was mm-hmm. fair to him, mm-hmm. um, which is almost, you know, all you could ask for. Yeah. It is. Um, the other great thing is that, you know, we live in a time where all of the journals of the four Denali participants were online, mm-hmm. like digitized. I mean, actually, you know, photos of the journals, not just transcriptions, but the actual, you could look at the actual journals themselves online. So, um, as you know from reading, I'm, I based most of the chapters about the uh, the ascent on those journal entries, just sort of combining the four mm-hmm. the four different vantage points of what was going on every day, um, and and I had great help from libraries and and uh, museums in Alaska who helped me come up with photos and that sort of thing. So it was is a pretty some, standard. Yeah, is there some unicorn of information? Uh, I, I suspect I know what it is. Some sort of unicorn <laughs> that you were looking for. And it's particularly in a pandemic, you were doing pandemic research. Um, you couldn't catch that unicorn. I should say unicorn, maybe a golden stag. I don't know. Unicorns don't exist, <laughs> but this this one exists, but it's rare or something. Um, that that uh, It's not quite that gorgeous. Um, <laughs> but the one thing I was hoping to find out more about is we had this one, one brief tantalizing mention of Stuck about how when he was a youth, he used to scramble around in the, in the, uh, um, oh gosh, now I forgot what they're called. The, the Lake, the Lake District. District. Sorry, yeah. the Lake that's District what... of England, where the tallest mountains in England were. Um, and that's all he says. And it's maddening because um, that's where British mountaineering began in the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, Edward Wimper, who was the first famous mountaineer who went on to write about his scrambles in the Alps. Uh, mm-hmm. Started out in the Lake District, so it was it was maddening not to be able to know more about that yeah, particular. I, I noted part that. Of life. <laughs> and I, <laughs> he, he referred to his boyish scrambles, and then you do the math and you realize that he could have having boyish scrambles at the same time that British mountaineering is being created in the Lake District. He could have right. been there watching these guys and saying, "Gee, I want to do that." Exactly. You know, um, exactly. He ended up climbing a much bigger mountain than Wimper even climbed less technical. Exactly. Well, right. to a certain extent, but still, <laughs> um, I'm curious, finally, uh, what did you change your mind about? I mean, maybe even from the time, if you look back at your MA and, you, and, you, and I wouldn't force you to read your MA thesis, no one should be forced to read their MA thesis. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's been a while and you might've changed your mind now about something. And I'm, I'm curious, what have you changed your mind about in the course of, of writing the book? particularly since mm-hmm. having gone to this well twice. Yeah. I, I promise I'm not sidestepping the question because I'm <laughs> going to answer it a slightly different way. Okay. Um, I didn't, I, I sort of redirected my mind more than changed it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, there was a, uh, when I started researching the history of Alaska previous to stuck, um, I, would, I found a book called the, Native, the Alaska Native Reader, and I found a statement in there that said, the history of Alaska is often told from the perspective of outsiders and those who view the resources of Alaska as amazing treasures to exploit. And that really set me back on my heels. You know, I'm in the beginning of this book, and I want to write, and I want to write a story that's interesting and fascinating and, and enthralling and all that sort of thing. And I, and I wonder, you know, Am I just am I just someone else? Am I a prospector who's come to the gold rush in 1897 to exploit what's in Alaska? 
for my own purposes. And so um, it really made me double down on trying my best to tell the Alaska Native story, to bring as much Alaska Native history in as possible, um, to show them as not just the recipients of some sort of largesse from Stuck, but co-creators of their world and their destiny, you know, with him there to, to be their advocate. Um, so it, it really, it really reoriented my book in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's how I would indirectly answer your question. My guest today has been Patrick Dean. He's the author of A Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali, America's Wildest Peak. Patrick, thanks so much for being with us on Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciated it. Really enjoyed it. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.